0: Hello and welcome to Songs for the Struggling Artist the blogcast. This is episode 296. My name is Emily Rainbow Davis. Thank you so much for listening. Today's blog is being recorded on Sunday. It'll come out on Monday as usual, but I'm recording this part here on Sunday because I have a rehearsal on my usual podcast recording evening. So I have to, uh, you know, move things around a little bit. It's crazy to have a rehearsal again. I am uh, doing a benefit zoom reading. So I uh, I, we have a we have a dress rehearsal on podcast night. So if there's news between now and uh, tomorrow, uh, I won't catch it. So not that this is up to the minute blog casting, by the way, I'm, I'm like months behind in terms of when these things get written, when they get typed up, when they get posted, and then I finally record the podcast version. So I think we are all prepared for me to miss a news story. So today's blog is about a movie. Uh, I, I, there are a couple spoilers in this. I, I have to say, I don't think it would ruin the movie to, uh, encounter the spoilers. Like the, the story is not, uh, whodunit or anything like that. It's just like, there's a, there's what feels a bit like, a wh- why, why is she like this? What happened to her? Uh, that you find out. As the movie goes on, I don't think knowing that is going to shift your enjoyment of the movie. So, I say that to say if you would rather not hear any spoilers for *The Lost Daughter*, um, maybe skip this episode. Or I'm gonna I'm gonna flag when the spoiler is coming, and um, there are quite a few paragraphs after the spoiler that deal with the spoiler, and then by the end of it, there's no more spoiler. So I'm not sure how long that's going to be in podcast numbers. But I I would say a couple minutes. Just forward ahead a couple minutes if you want to miss the spoiler. So uh, why don't I read it to you? It is called Context is Everything. A Gen X Look at the Lost Daughter. There's a little bit of a conversation happening in feminist circles around the movie The Lost Daughter, written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. I felt it was my duty, as a feminist on the internet, to watch it. I didn't really think I'd have anything to say about it, necessarily, but I like to be informed, and it turns out I do have something to say. Funnily enough, my thoughts are probably more Gen X-related than feminist-related, though. I suppose at its heart, it's Gen X feminism that's gotten under my skin. The movie takes place in the more or less contemporary moment, though not precisely, as it is a COVID-less world. And Olivia Colman plays a 48-year-old woman. When the movie flashes back to her 20-something self, it is to about 20 years ago, though it has a vague sense of being in the 90s. The character wears foam earphones, like back in the day, the song she tells us she loves is the Gen X anthem of Bon Jovi's Livin' on a Prayer. The context of the film says, this is a Gen X woman. But very little of this makes sense. Like, I guess a Gen X English woman could go crazy for "Living on a Prayer. But it's odd. It would mean something in real life. I don't know what it would mean exactly, but whatever it means doesn't add up to the person in the movie. Look, I, like the character, am also 48. So I may be overly tuned in to the specifics of this woman who was meant to be my age, but I would be awfully surprised to meet a woman my age who grew up in Leeds, became a passionate and respected academic translator of English poetry into Italian, and... Her favorite song was Living on a Prayer. I'd need a whole movie to explain how that could be, honestly. Also, one of the central events of the movie is just so weird, an out-of-generational character, that it would need another movie's worth of explanation to make it make sense. In the movie, we learn that Coleman's character has two daughters in their mid to late 20s, which means she had them in her early 20s this would be extremely unusual for a highly educated, ambitious Gen X woman. Certainly, there are Gen X women who had their kids young, no doubt. But it is incredibly rare in a character like this one. Most Gen X academic nerds would wait years to have their kids and to have two kids so young. Again, as an ambitious academic, one I can buy. That's a mistake, probably. Two seems crazy. Like, I need an explanation for it or I'm going to spend the whole movie confused, which I did. Anyway, and this is a spoiler, so skip ahead to towards the end if you want to be surprised. Spoiler follows. When her kids are five and seven, she leaves them. Whole cloth, never to be seen again until three years later. The movie tries to make this understandable, but it's just weird. As my Gen X friend, with whom I discussed this, said, there was childcare in the 90s. Like, leaving their kids is just not something I've ever heard of anyone doing. Tempted? Sure. Kids will make you crazy, I'm given to understand, but to just leave when divorce, joint custody, child care and blended families are all options that are on the table, she leaves her family for a rewarding, sexy, professional life. Seems like a nice life she's leaving them for, but the choice is super weird. Gen X moms know how to work it out. We grew up with working moms. The work life question Really, isn't this giant a conflict for Gen X moms? It still sucks, don't get me wrong, but it's not so extreme that leaving for years at a time makes any sense. Our conflicts in this arena are much more subtle, more nuanced. We didn't have to flee the people we love to have a life of the mind. The thing that seems important to recognize is that this film is based on a book by Elena Ferrante who writes about the specifics of Neapolitan women in earlier eras, with razor-sharp analysis. I haven't read The Lost Daughter, but I've read her Neapolitan quadrilogy, with which it would seem to have a lot in common. I'd imagine they are set in similar time periods. I assume from the structure of this film that the book takes place decades ago. I know from the articles about it that it is concerned with both the mom character's Neapolitan background and the bits of that she shares with her fellow tourists in the group. I assume that the main character, Lita, is of an entirely different generation. I can probably even guess which one. Based on the choices she makes and the desperation she feels and how limited her scope is, I'd say she's a contemporary of Sylvia Plath or Anne Sexton. These are women so backed into corners, they feel they have no other choice but to stick their heads in the oven or permanently walk out the door. These choices are perfectly readable in a time of extreme oppression. And I'm delighted to realize that the 90s were not a time of extreme oppression. Gen X women did actually have choices in the 90s. If we wanted to study Italian poetry, we did it. It's not that extreme, actually. So this character just seems like she has a need for some medication and a good therapist, at the very least. This story, as told in the film, makes no sense. But if I just sort of overlay the events onto, say, the 1950s or early 1960s with a bunch of Neapolitan roughs, it all falls into place. Context is everything. Let's do some math. Let's assume this film is set in this current moment. So this character is my age, right? Which means she probably graduated from college in 1995. Her eldest child is 25. So she had her two years after she finished undergrad. So that's 1997. The character is a serious academic. So she must've gone on to get a master's, probably a PhD. Did she get pregnant while she was in grad school? Probably. Unless she's supposed to be in grad school at the point when we first meet her? And that old guy is her advisor? I don't think so, because a well-regarded scholar wouldn't be citing the work of a grad student. She's published somewhere. She had her two kids somewhere in the middle of getting a PhD and getting published. I'm not saying that's not possible, but it is pretty unlikely in the late 90s. At the point when we meet this character, her kids are five and seven, which means it's around 2002. This Gen X mom abandoned her kids in 2002. It's not 1957. It's 2002. There was child care in 2002. Again, not great child care, but child care. Also, there were cell phones. I got one in 2002, and I was very late to the party. And, as my friend pointed out, there was feminism. There was serious feminism. I'm sorry, but you couldn't be a serious scholar in this era without some encounter with feminism. It's a whole field of scholarship, and no comparative literature scholar could get through academia without a serious grounding in it. I'm not saying every academic in this era was a feminist, but to not have any relationship to those issues at all in this era... Sorry, no way. You're either in the game or you're Camille Paglia, and no one's going around just translating a bunch of male poets in 2002 with no awareness of what feminist scholarship would have to say about it. But set in the right context in, say, an era that had problems that had no name, like what Betty Friedan was talking about, and when second wave feminism was really just strapping on its boots, sure. Sure. It would all make total sense. We would, in fact, root for a character to get out in that context. This character would be a singular person up against the tide of her culture and her time, and we would have her back. I mean, the thing is, both feminism and childcare had been around for decades by the time this character leaves her kids. A lot of Gen X kids were raised with both of those things. Many of our mothers were feminists. Many of them were working mothers who sent us to daycare. Our parents got divorces when things didn't work out and it was fine, not a big deal. But this film somehow lives in a world where there are neither Gen X feminists nor baby boomer feminists or millennial or Zoomer feminists for that matter. This is probably because it's based on a book that takes place so long before. Do Gen X moms fantasize about leaving their families and disappearing for a while? I'm sure they do, but fantasizing is very different than doing. And the choice to chuck it all, just generationally, doesn't make any sense. I feel like a lot of Gen X moms waited to have kids so we wouldn't feel the need to abandon them. Spoilers complete. Is the film well done? It is, actually. The performances are excellent. Coleman is always amazing, and Hall has done extraordinary work. I loved how the eroticism of the character's work was palpable and exciting. There's an artful quality to it all, but it's just weird. And not in a good way. As Nyla Burton said in Bitch Magazine, We need more messy female characters. But messy female character does not have to mean illegible female characters. Sometimes the two are mixed up. Confusing the audience about who a character is at their core doesn't endear us to them or make them feminist heroes. That's Nyla Burton in Bitch Magazine. Making Coleman's character, specifically Gen X, makes things that would have been legible absolutely opaque. The good news is that this movie makes me see some incredible progress that has been made over the years. That Gen X women are actually more together than I'd have thought. I feel like you could make it make sense, with another few hours of story and context and explanation... Just the way I'd need another movie to figure out how a working class Gen X academic woman from Leeds ended up a big fan of Bon Jovi, I need another movie to make this movie make sense. It might be an interesting story, but it would take a long time to explain. I guess my response to this movie took a long time to explain too, didn't it? (laughs) I don't know. It got me worked up. Yeah. And since I wrote this, I have subsequently seen another adaptation of Elena Ferrante's work. Uh, I've been watching the TV series of my brilliant friend, um, the Neapolitan quadrilogy that I made mention of here. Um, And that adaptation, I think she's involved in. uh, And it, it feels like on the nose, like it's exactly right. Uh, and on the nose in a good way. <laughs> it's also a real pleasure to hear it in actual Neapolitan dialect in Italian. I, I feel like I'm experiencing the novels in a in a more I don't know, authentic way is not really the word, but it just uh, like in reading them in English, I could feel what I was missing a bit. So it's great to kind of get that language piece Shifted in. My Italian is not good enough to have read them in Italian, but it is good enough to get by in a television series with subtitles. So, uh, and so I do recommend that series actually uh, more than I would recommend this film. Um, yeah, similar issues I think, um, but more directly addressed. So, for example, I'd forgotten that in the novels. The, the My Brilliant Friend novels, there, there is a whole kind of encounter with feminism that the academic character has. It's not, it's not like some mystery. Like she, know, she knows it's an issue <laughs> as she's going through it. So this, the character in The Lost Daughter's kind of cluelessness feels uh, off, I guess. Anyway. A lot to think about. I also wonder if I just, you know, as a, I feel like the movie treated this forty-eight-year-old woman as if she were eighty-eight, and uh, I, 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 I do not like that. I do not like it one bit. So, yes, what what song you may wonder. We'll go here, and I really wish that it could be something else, but it kind of has to be Living on a Prayer, doesn't it? It is the thing several people commented about on the in the comments of the blog. Um, a lot of people were like, yeah, what woman, just woman, period, has Living on a Prayer as a favorite song? Um, yeah. <laughs> so it much has been made of it. And so I'm, I must make it. That is my, it. Perhaps it is my penance. I don't know what for. But anyway, I, I, I have learned living on a prayer. And I will play it for you in a moment. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you see this movie, please let me know your thoughts. And uh, if you like the blog, please tell someone about it. If you like the podcast, please tell someone about it. Share it, uh, like it, review it, give it five stars in your podcast app, be subscribed. There's so many things, so many, so many tasks. Um, Do them all. Uh, And if you would like to support it with your dollars, it's much appreciated. That is on patreon.com slash emilyrdavis. There's also Ko-fi and PayPal. All those links are in the show notes. If you'd like to support my audio drama, The Dragoning, we are fundraising for season two. That link is also in the show notes. And thank you for listening. So here I will give to you Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer On ukulele. Because I had to, right? It has to be ukulele. This song is ridiculous. And it's slightly more ridiculous on ukulele, which I like. But it is interesting. I don't think I'd ever really paid attention to the lyrics before. And it is kind of a, you know, working class anthem, sort of. Um... Not but also not, you know, Uh, it does feel a little bit like maybe the filmmakers were like, what's a song that someone from this era could equate her with the working class? What do what do working class people like? Let's see. Oh, let's choose the song that basically lays it out. They could have gone with born in the USA, but she wasn't born in the USA, so they had to go with living on a prayer. That's what I think. But, like... What what I guess I really struggle with about this song, I'm sorry, I'm going to play it for you in a minute, but the thing about it is, it's not like no British people like living on a prayer. That's absolutely not the case. It, went, it was very successful. I looked at the numbers that, like, you know, it charted just as well in the U.K. as it did in the U.S. Uh, when it came out. So it's not like it wasn't a popular song. It's just like certain people like certain music. <laughs> and... A person, even if she's working class, is still going to choose more esoteric music. This is a woman who goes crazy for Italian poetry. She's not going to go crazy for Bon Jovi. Like, she's just not. There are other choices. And in that era, those choices were all being played on the radio at the same time. Like, if... if. I don't know. If the movie was like, "Oh, she's a huge fan of the Smiths," I'd be like, "Well, yes, of course she is. That's logical." Whereas Bon Jovi, I just anyway. This, I could talk about it for ages apparently. <laughs> and now I will sing it for you. Here you are, I give to you. Living on a prayer. By Bon Jovi. Well, now me. But Bon Jovi.
1: He's down on his luck, it's tough, so tough. Gina works the diner all day, working for her man. She brings home her pay for love, for love. She says we gotta hold on to what used to make it talk so tough. It's tough. Gina dreams of running away. When she cries in the night, Tommy whispers, baby, it's all."